0: From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald.
1: My name is Julie Snyder, and I'm the executive producer and co-creator of the Serial Podcast. When I was a kid, I think um, I wanted to be a lawyer, just like any good liberal arts student would
0: Twenty years ago, Julie Snyder applied for a job at a little-known radio show called This American Life. It had only been on air for a year, she said of her application, "...I was incredibly unqualified, it was so small and new at the time that the bar was really low." It was there she developed a passion for audio storytelling and met Sarah Koenig. Fifteen years later, the two would start working on a new podcast project in Sarah's basement. Project launched in 2014. It was called Syria. Julie Snyder, take me back. Was storytelling part of your childhood growing up?
1: Yes, I think in an informal way. Um, I always actually think about the fact that I think my family, they were very much focused on on telling stories and telling funny stories. But I always remember that there was um, probably one of the the best instructions I've ever gotten was that there was a period of time of where it was instituted for at the dinner table to teach us all how to have dinner table conversations that we were allowed to. We would go in, in I have five brothers, and um, that we would all go in uh, order and each of us would be allowed to talk about what we did that day, like how our day went. And we would start off, because we so wanted to hold the spotlight, you'd right. be like, so, so...
0: this was competitive storytelling.
1: I woke <laughs> up. Well, we would just draw it out of being like, and I walked down the hall, and I went to the bathroom, and I brushed my teeth. And I just remember my dad pounding the table and saying, highlights, kids, highlights. <laughs> And I always think about it now because I feel it sometimes when I'm doing edits on other people's stories or when they're telling stories that I feel like I want to say the same thing. I'm just highlights.
0: This was instituted by your dad. Yes. Why? Why was that important?
1: Um, I think it was just a matter of uh, there had been um, a lot of fighting going on at the table and insults and uh, just inappropriate table manners and so uh, this it, it, you know what honestly once we started telling our really long boring stories that we sort of killed but yeah I think um telling entertaining stories it's still honestly for my family um, I think I mean I guess most families it's that way but um yeah yeah it's very focused around
0: telling a story. Tell me about where you grew up.
1: Let's see. I grew up in, um, it's called Rock Island, Illinois. It's a pretty small town on the border of Iowa and Illinois. You know, it's one of those places that at one point it was sort of an industrial, but then in the uh, 70s and 80s that went bust. And so then, yeah, then Rock Island and the surrounding areas kind of fell on hard times.
0: And what were your days spent doing? You're one of six, but the others were all boys. Uh Were you one of the pack or were you being? the girl both
1: it's awesome to be the girl it's really nice to be it's so much better to be the girl than to be one of the boys what oh well because nobody they get in a lot of trouble if they hit me (laughs) (laughs) so in a lot of ways um i i could you know they all got you know beaten up so badly by each other and then but if somebody hit me usually usually the repercussions would come down like you can't hit the girl And, um, yeah, no, and everybody was very nice to me, I think. I think I just got, you know, it's easy to get lost among six six kids. So to be the one girl, um, everyone, you, you know, you just get a little bit more attention. But, no, I was part of the pack as well. I mean, I know a lot, a lot of gross stuff about boys. Like, go on. Yeah, just gross stuff. Coming, like, sitting next to me on the couch, my brothers would take off their socks like peel off socks, and then just sit there and scratch their shins. I don't know why. And somehow that must feel good after you've taken off a sweaty sock. And they just be like, oh, like, I mean, just just certain things like that. Where I'm like, oh, but dude, go sit somewhere else. Like, do that somewhere else. Um, and anyway, I mean, I could go a lot grosser than that of the various different things that happened. But, um, yeah, it was fun. I loved them.
0: Growing up in... Those sorts of communities is often a sense, I think, of wanting to get out and leave. Mm-hmm. Is that something that came to you during those years, or it was a very happy, content? This is where I am, and this is where I'll be.
1: It wasn't. It wasn't
0: like i
1: I'm going to get out. You know what though? But most people in those kind of towns, it's it's sort of an understood that that's most likely, probably what you are going to do: getting a job. In you know what I mean? You can't get you can't be a foreman on the floor anymore. You know, I think it was sort of understood that for the most part, it, it, it was a real effort to have if you were going to stay.
0: But you were going to go off to UC Santa Cruz mm-hmm. to study what?
1: Oh, at the beach, maybe smoking <laughs> <Swinking laughs> weed. I don't know. It was a very UC Santa Cruz is a very. Um, I had no. I had. I had no. I had no plan when had I when I went to UC Santa Cruz. UC Santa Cruz is um, one of the UC schools, University of California schools. It's right, it's in um, the Santa Cruz Mountains, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It's beautiful. It is so gorgeous. When I went there, they had no grades. We were just narrative evaluations. It was so easy to like blow it off if you didn't do well. You what know, kind of like, education is that? I loved it. I <laughs> loved it so much. I'm just like, I'm not a science person. Oh, well. Yeah, it was great. I loved Santa Cruz. And then actually, it ended up being really nice because they, they had a little bit of directed programs, but that were those were like in things like environmental science that... I didn't know anything about and I wasn't interested in, and again, I don't do science, so I didn't pay any attention, but but one of the nice things about it was that it was a very, they really took the liberal arts ethos uh, to heart, and it was very much about exploring your own interests and uh, challenging a status quo. They very much saw themselves, like, sort of as uh, being in opposition to the establishment, and... Because of that, they really encouraged anybody to do—it th- was very encouraged to break rules. When I was there, I did—I I thought maybe I wanted to be a journalist, and I tried to get a job with the campus newspaper. But I don't know. They weren't that nice. <laughs> I don't know. They seemed a little snotty, and I was like, oh, forget it. <laughs> um, and then I heard that uh, about the radio station there and that they were teaching uh, broadcast journalism classes. And uh, so I took a broadcast journalism class there and then after i took it i took it the first year and then i think cuz of budget cuts they fired the teacher and then they hired me to teach the class for the following three years so it was really and those students i have to say definitely got they got what was being paid
0: for that's quite a meteoric rise though from having done one course in radio journalism to then I'm teaching the course
1: always in the right place at the right time you know
0: but did it come naturally to you there must have been something about your skill in this to be able to then turn around and teach it?
1: I think that I showed an interest in it. I enjoyed it. I really liked it. You know, I liked playing with sound and people's voices. That, to me, seemed a lot more fun than writing. So I was drawn to it. And then, you know, I think I remember during my freshman year, I don't know if you're – there was the – the verdict, there were protests in Los Angeles because the verdict of the Rodney King beating and or trial um, in, in the United States, which was a huge deal. And there were uh, big protests and riots in Los Angeles. And then there had been some in San, up and down the coast of California because at University of California, Santa Cruz, a lot of the students were from Los Angeles. And so they felt really affected by it and really upset about it. And so I remember reporting on it for the local radio station and then the guy who was teaching in class who was great but he was saying you know we can feed it to we we can feed it to NPR and we can get it on the national network and we should get it this morning on morning edition and just the deadline then nature of that of just and you know getting it down to 30 seconds which was really it seemed like I was out there for like nine hours with those people. But anyway. Um, That's
0: definitely highlights, yeah, as your father exactly, would exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly. But um, it was really fun, you know what I mean? Like I was just like, oh, I like this. I like the pace of this. I like doing this. So I think part of it was probably just that I showed a willingness to come back the next day.
0: But it sounds like it was both the journalistic bit of it, the, mm-hmm. the pace, the flow, the energy, but also the technical and creative Side of things that immediately grabbed you?
1: Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't particularly creative. I have to say, I was pretty much just. I. I mean, I was. I was definitely just ripping off what other people were doing. I was just copying them. Um, I didn't know enough how to be creative then. But I think I understood that this was just the first step. Hmm. Mimicking other people was, was hopefully, fingers crossed, just the first step until I got better and good and, you know, and, until I could start to actually go to another level.
0: There is a certain creativity, though, isn't there, in not knowing what you're doing?
1: Yes, definitely, definitely. And, and probably a certain libelous quality to it as well. I definitely, I can only imagine. I stole so much stuff out of the local newspaper and off the local TV newscast. I just would blatantly rip them off. So in
0: 1997, Julie Snyder applies for a job as a producer at a program that had only been on air for one year. It was called This American Life. What did you know about it when you applied?
1: I didn't know much, but I knew that it was the only thing I had heard that I wanted to do that point I had done I had done radio in college and then actually while I was in college I also got a job being the news anchor on the local conservative talk radio station um, so I did that for two years and then I felt really bored at that point it had been three years and I was like becoming I was like a 23 year old cynic you know and I was like God I feel like this is like the fourth time I've done this story you know so I thought well maybe I if I move to a bigger place it's just because there's not that much happening in this small town I need to move to a bigger city so I moved to Chicago and I was working at a commercial station in Chicago and frankly it wasn't exciting there either I felt like you know it was it was definitely sort of driven by if there were I mean a train derailment that was God knows that everyone loved that if if a train had derailed but other than that it was really dull
0: spending time in America. The thing that strikes me is the prevalence of the sort of the broadcast voice, as I call it, if it's TV or radio. There's just this booming voice that they all put on. Did yeah, you get and we were to supposed sort of to do that. It?
1: Yeah, and I thought that was kind of all there was, you know, but I, at least I was able to start to recognize that there were reporters who had been covering Chicago city politics for 20 years at that point. They knew everybody. They knew everyone at City Hall. They knew all of the, you know, Chicago is is a pretty insular and oh, oh, a not so up and up place. <laughs> it's fascinating. Their politics are fascinating. The who's allied with who and the leveraging and everything like that. And these people knew all of that. When you would be sitting in the office, they would tell such fascinating and interesting stories about everybody who was in the news that day. But I have to say, I even noticed that then when they would go do their stories for the note for the nightly newscast, you couldn't tell any of that. Their story sounded exactly the same as every other person who was doing a story on the radio station or Why in the is newspaper. That? I don't I think it was because at a certain point it was just everyone was just sort of it was its own little machine and kind of mimicking everyone else and that was the format and that was the idea of how it was supposed to sound and it was disheartening to me it was really disappointing that I felt like, I can't tell that you that this person knows so much about this topic and has so much insight in this topic. None of that comes through in these stories that they do. So at that point, I kind of just figured I was going to quit and go to law school. Um, again, like any good liberal arts um, student, <laughs> I'm just going to go to law school. Um, so I thought I'd quit because I didn't like it anymore. And then I heard This American Life, and they had just started broadcasting, and it really blew me away. It re- I felt like I hadn't it were people talking the way they normally talk. It didn't yeah, it didn't seem like there was a format or that it was it was packaged. It was really emotional and funny and sort of weird. I was so drawn to it. So that I knew that they were trying to put together something different, but I had no idea how you would do it or what was required to do it. But it felt a little bit like going in there and meeting them. There was only, it was Ira Glass, and then there were two other producers at the time. And, you know, it was like, it was as if you were going to somebody's garage and watching them put on a play.
0: So you applied for this job, you got it.
1: I applied for the job and I got it. Yeah, that's actually even probably more, that sounds like there was even more of a process than that. I got the job when Ira called me and said, can you start tomorrow, I had to, I was waiting tables. Yeah, and I was all like, "I I have to do the lunch shift first, but I can start. I could come in. I could probably be there around two thirty or three, and then so it was. It was. It was all like a little. There was not a lot of formal process to the whole thing, but I did. I did get the job. Uh,
0: so uh, we obviously probably all know this American life as it is today. What was it like in the beginning? You said it felt like you are in a garage uh, with a couple of people mm-hmm. making this thing. Yeah. Uh, did they know what they were trying to do though?
1: I think Ira knew what we were trying to do. I, I'm not sure. It was it was Ira and me and uh, Nancy Updike and Elise Spiegel. And Nancy's still at This American Life now. Elise is now the host of Invisibilia, which is an NPR podcast. And I think Ira knew what we were doing. And the three of us were kind of like, you know, what we were doing is we were telling stories and just trying to get reactions. I think that's what we knew. Like, if if it looked like it was something that got a laugh or somebody thought it was emotional or meaningful, it it was just constantly, like, we knew at least that's what we were striving for on the show. But how to make that happen or... How to save a story, you know how to not take the wrong turn or how to I, we weren't quite sure yet how to do that. I think we've technically that's what developed over time.
0: It sounds obvious when you when you sort of say it out loud, but, but the whole idea really is storytelling.
1: Mm-hmm. It was using, um, let's see how did we describe it uh, using the tools of journalism to tell the stories of everyday
0: life. So why is that different to what everyday journalism is?
1: Because everyday journalism, there is certainly—there's an idea about what qualifies as an important story— I think this is honestly, I think this American life in a lot of time in a lot of ways has changed. so and, and has infected so much other broadcast journalism. But this was 20, 21 years ago, and I think especially at the time, yeah, there was a certain idea of what what justified a story being on the radio, what made something be an important story. And you know, and newsworthy. It had these very, very tight, rigid and boring rules that didn't exist that weren't serving a larger purpose because a lot of times what they were first of all it all skewed toward depressing everything was you know a story was only was only worthy if basically you were fighting kind of A truth to power, and it was depressing, and a lot of people were being hurt by something, you know, which I I get, you know, I mean, actually, you know, journalism is about kind of holding the powerful accountable. So in a lot of ways, you're always going to have stories like that. But we had gone so far, it felt like you, you never heard anyone have, like, sort of surprise or joy or just funny you just didn't hear those things on the radio very often or somebody having a lot of ambiguity you didn't hear that either it was it was very much like things were either were very black and white clearly
0: set narratives
1: mm-hmm. and we, we were really definitely interested much more in the fact of hearing people tell stories in the same way that that we felt like we experienced stories and experienced our lives, which is a a lot more ambiguity, a lot more places where I'm not sure what I think about something. I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's good and it's bad and it's complicated. You know, there there are a lot of different things going on. And those were kind of, we were looking to open up a space where we could tell stories with a bigger emotional
0: range. So is there any moment or turning point in your time at This American Life where you felt like, here we are, this is what we're doing? The
1: biggest turning point I felt like in this American life, because for the first years, I was learning what it was that we were doing and how to do it. And then we kind of got our skills up and we were able to kind of get it going faster. But like I said, that we were using the tools of journalism to tell the stories of everyday life and we really for the most part we took that to heart these were not particularly topical stories they weren't political they didn't ne- they weren't things that necessarily had any consequences for anybody other than the car- the people talking in the stories they they didn't go broader and then after september 11th that became because everyday life became, it was, it was political. It was, we were lit. We were, everybody was, was swimming in the waters of a post nine 11 politics and response and war and in, especially in the United States and civil liberties and and national identity and everything, there was no way that you could just tell stories that would be divorced from that. Even personal stories are going to have those implications. But also I was interested, that's where my interest all of a sudden went. Like I wasn't really interested in hearing, frankly, I got tired of hearing people tell stories about their bothers you know like who cares I, I after a while I just started feeling like bored by it we had done a lot of them and instead I was a little bit in, more interested in the outside world and so there was sort of this interesting thing of where we felt like let's see we used the tools of journalism to tell the stories of everyday life but then we actually started used the tools of storytelling like kind of personal storytelling and applied them back again to more traditional journalism, as we started taking on more topical things. So then as we began covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and then started taking on talking about Guantanamo and and talking about, uh, well, we had the financial crisis, and then we did healthcare shows, and then we started talking about the gun violence. And, and in all of those more topical and traditional and political stories, that's where I felt like for me, that was where all of my interests started going. And I was much more, I was the person on staff who was much more in charge of like taking on those shows. And I liked telling those stories through people. I wanted to find people who could, again, talk in a relatable way. And, you know, sometimes you know, they're not going to be representative of anything more than what they are. But if you start hearing enough of them, you start realizing that there are, you know, again, there is ambiguity, there is nuance. There, There isn't a monolithic way that certain people think, the Republicans think this way and Democrats think that way. I loved exploring stories that
0: way. Why do people, why do characters matter in storytelling?
1: You empathize with them, you know? And so when somebody tells a story and you recognize yourself in their story, which often happens, you know, it it can be because, because they're, they're coming across and they're explaining their, their very human feelings about something or they're very, the way they interact with the story or the way that, you know, something that they thought at a certain moment, things that make them human, you relate to that, you empathize with that. And I think it just provides such a deeper understanding then of the position that they're in. And especially when it comes to these more topical stories that you could, you could be begin to sort of have a deeper emotional connection.
0: At This American Life, you meet a colleague uh, who you work together with and you work together well. And I think it's 15 years later that you and Sarah Koenig start working on a new project in a garage. Ira Glass said of the original idea... I completely support you guys if this is what you want to do. But just before we pull the trigger on this, do you have any other ideas? So, Julie, what was that original idea?
1: The original idea of doing a spinoff show for This American Life, um, Sarah and I wanted to do a spinoff show. We wanted to experiment. We wanted to see if we could do something different. And it was not serial that we had come up with. We had come up with this idea to do a show called the This Week called This Week. And we had done a couple of them for This American Life where the idea was like all of the stories had taken place in the previous seven days. So um, it was kind of like a little bit of a newsy show, uh, but it would be like kind of a hybrid of big national stories and then personal stories. Like I remember the first time we did it uh, was the week Bin Laden was killed. And so we covered that. And then also that week, my daughter learned how to ride her bike. So we covered that. So it was kind of a mix of these things. And we really enjoyed it. And we were like, this show should totally exist. Somebody should completely do this show. But there was an element of where both of us were like, I don't really want to do this show. But <laughs> somebody should totally do it. But we still were running at it. We were going to do it. We were going to do it. And, and But there was a lot of skepticism, I have to say, among the This American Life crowd on it. And that was when Ira said to us, we were about to get started on the This Week show. We were, like, as its own separate spinoff. And Ira said, um, I completely support you, and I will— totally do this and with you guys and, and help you along. But before just just before we go and get started. Do you have any other ideas? And then that's when um yeah, Sarah said, Well I I have one idea and I've been kind of kicking it around. And that's when she said, what if what if we did like a serialized documentary? What if it was sort of like, instead of, you know, coming back, coming to a a new story every week, what if each week we came back to the same story? And, and that with podcasting, I think that was like kind of the realization of being like, oh yeah, you know what, you know, we could do that since podcasting's on demand and it wouldn't be, it's a really hard thing to do for, for broadcast radio, but um, it's something that it seemed well suited for podcasting, and so yeah, right away we really loved the idea. I think we started working on Serial like within a week.
0: And how long did it take you to get the actual story, the case?
1: Uh, at the same time of coming up with the idea for Serial, Sarah had actually already started looking into the Adnan Syed case because she had thought maybe it could be a story for This American Life. So we didn't go into big search. She had said when we talked about doing Serial, she was like, you know, this this story. I have no idea where this – at that point, she really had not done a ton of reporting, but had looked into it enough, and she was like, it could be this.
0: Um, and we had So a, this is one of the ones tucked in your back pocket kind of thing, one of these stories. Yeah. I'm sitting there floating around. In yeah, the she
1: the she had been thinking about, like, maybe it could be for This American Life. She just wasn't sure really what it was about, you know, what, what the story was about necessarily and if it was going to go anywhere. It's a little harder for if it were This American Life story because you felt like – You only have an hour. Anyways, it would be an entirely different story, um, the Adnan Syed case, if you were only going to do it in an hour. And so I think that's where – but she had been thinking she only had an hour. Um, So she had been kind of like, kind of, "Hmm, I don't know if this is really a story or not. But then once we decided to do serial – then it became pretty clear that it was like, oh, you know, this would be a really good one and could handle multiple episodes. And this would actually serve this story better. This format serves this story better. Uh,
0: Stylistically, was there a deliberate choice to sort of create your own thing? Sarah Koenig's voice, her style of reporting it uh, has become such a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Was that deliberate?
1: Yes and no. I mean, to a certain extent, like, Sarah's voice and her style... It's pretty consistent if you go back and listen to it. She'd been doing stories for like 12 years on This American Life at that point. And if you go back and listen to those stories, there's sort of – it's it's not a ton different. It's all there. You know, yeah, it's all there, exactly. And, I mean, for the most part, that's what we're do- – we're just doing – to an extent, all we're doing is just – we're doing really long This American Life stories, you know. Um, like, we kind of – we are who we are, uh, and that is – we're public radio producers. So, to an extent, that's what we do. That said, yeah, there were a lot of decisions that were actually the purposefully made that were more aesthetic decisions for this show that we'd never done before. I think one of the main ones was, especially for the first season of Serial, for that story, was having Sarah be even more present as a character in the story, documenting to an extent her own reporting and what she thought and what she didn't think a lot of times or what she didn't know, all of those were things that we made very, we had to make explicit choices about it. And and like I said, we'd been doing this American Life Stories and it's not like, on This American Life, nobody's ever put the word I in a script before, you know? I mean, we're, we're pretty familiar with, with first-person narrative journalism, but not quite. We hadn't ever, especially Sarah, and she's she tends to be a little bit more conservative. She comes from a newspaper background. She'd never really gone quite that far before, and I think at first she felt uncomfortable about it, but I, I really was pointing out to her that, like, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying you need to do this as, this isn't a trick. This isn't some, like, pandering flashiness that I want to put on the show. This is what serves the story. You need to do it for this story because that story was a story that really lived in the details, and the only way a listener understood the significance of the details was for Sarah to tell us what she made of them, and I was like, you know, we will... We give everybody all the information. Somebody is completely entitled, a listener, to disagree with you and disagree with the conclusions that you're drawing. But you need to tell us what you're making of this stuff. Otherwise, it just feels like you're just giving me some really long list about I mean I I always felt it for sure we confronted it kind of in the second episode of the first season which was essentially it's an episode about motive and was there a motive present for the murder I remember in some early drafts it just sort of felt like Sarah was describing in a lot of detail the relationship the 6 month relationship and then the breakup of two 17 year olds in high school from 15 years ago, where I was just like, who cares? (laughs) Oh my, like nothing could be more boring and tedious and kind of stupid and small. You know, I was like, I don't, it's not clear to me, why are you telling me this? And, And until needing to point out to her of like, you're telling me this because what you're trying to determine is, did this breakup, does this sound plausible that this breakup was so painful and offended Adnan Syed to such an extent that he would then murder Haman Lee as in revenge or violence or something. And it was like, I need you to like lay out for us why. So so that was really interesting and definitely a new territory for us to be putting herself in her own, she, you know, there were times of where she really, she waffles and says, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know if this is significant. And those aren't the kinds of things I think reporters usually feel very comfortable talking about publicly or the things that they don't
0: know. I think journalistically, for me, that was what stood out, less the bit about her injecting herself and more the injection of Mm self-doubt from a reporting point of view. Yeah. That was uncommon.
1: It is uncommon. I think for us, we felt like we were telling a story where we wanted ambiguity and nuance. We wanted characters. We wanted everyone to be three-dimensional. We wanted to be able to talk about that these that there weren't caricatures of people that that we could even have people who are good people who maybe had done a bad thing, in in all these ways we wanted to acknowledge that each person in this story is complicated, and that included Sarah. Sarah was complicated. She wasn't a black and white figure. She also has self doubt. She also has things that like where maybe she thinks something but doesn't actually have a ton to back it up, you know? It's like in her gut she wants to believe something but has to be honest about saying, I don't know. I think, like, in that way, that's what we were going for, is that everybody is complicated.
0: What did you expect it would be like once it was out there? Were you expecting it to do well?
1: I thought it would do well for, like, I wanted it to do well for a podcast. Like, at the time, basically, we were told that if we got 300,000 downloads – That would be good. That um, at the time, I think basically what it was, honestly, was that Alex Bloomberg, who is our former um, colleague at This American Life, he had just started um, a podcast called Startup and um, that was documenting the startup of his own business. And he had just gotten (laughs) 300,000. That was, I don't think I've ever told Alex that, but that was me and Sarah. We were like, oh, it's 300,000. We can get 300,000, just get 300,000 in one. We just went, yeah, just it was a little healthy competition.
0: Here you are all these years later doing the competitive storytelling. Uh-huh, right? <laughs> exactly.
1: That's true. Um, so, yeah, so we were like 300,000. And I kind of figured we could, I thought we could probably get that based off of, I was like, we'll get the grad school crowd maybe. You know, people who know how to use their phones because that would definitely, even in 2014, it was, it was a lot.
0: The day you dropped the first episode, talk me through that. What do you remember from that day?
1: The first episode actually released on This American Life so, if anything, like that's kind of more where it got a little bit of attention. But you know, we'd done stories, and I've been doing this American Life for eighteen years. Like, it was exciting and fun to do it, but it took a couple weeks before we started more being all like, "What is going on?" and realizing and starting to see people writing about the show. We getting numbers in, definitely. But I didn't know what to make of numbers when people would tell me what the numbers of downloads were. I didn't know what that really meant necessarily.
0: Is this you guys calling each other and saying, what's happening here?
1: Like I mean, at that point, then we were so. When we released the first episode, we'd only. We had done. I think we were just about to finish the fourth episode. So during then, the whole. The next three months while we were releasing the episodes, we were also working frantically to finish. <laughs> but to room to finish the episode. we're basking in the limelight. No, so I don't even calling each other. I to me it sort of feels like yeah, Sarah Sarah lives in Pennsylvania and I work out of our office in New York. But um I, it almost feels like the Skype is just up all the, there is no calling. There is just a constant talking um, to each other. Yeah, we were, I mean, it was, but, you know, so then it would be like, oh my God, did you guys see, you know, something written about the show? or There was just a lot of confusion. We found out that somebody, we found out Slate started to do a podcast about our podcast, like a recap podcast about it. That blew my mind, like the idea that you do a podcast about a podcast. But then we didn't really have time to really go, because, We kind of just had to put our heads down and just be like, okay, but anyway, back to this.
0: Is there a moment that you realize this this is some kind of other realm of broadcasting that we're entering? Yeah.
1: I think it was when Saturday Night Live parodied the show, and that really kind of blew my mind. When Saturday Night Live did it, I thought, my initial thought of it was like, my God, like... There are going to be very few people who watch Saturday Night Live who are going to understand what the hell this skit is about. Like, I'll, I it, for a while I just was very confused about like where I was just like, isn't like ninety five percent of their audience going to be like, I don't get this skit at all. I don't get what's funny about it and stuff. But then, so but but then it it sort of seemed like people were getting it, and so that's kind of more when I realized where I was, that this was out in the world that this was becoming bigger and out in the world and bigger than us that was a shock to me and it's really shocking because it's like you still work in a really tiny office with like a door handle that keeps on falling off and like (laughs) do you know what I mean and like where it's just like my life hasn't really changed other than the fact that I'm working constantly but then I see it out in the world in this way that that feels very separate from us too it felt like it wasn't it wasn't ours anymore. And then that felt bad. It felt like
0: we were kind of losing control. And, of course, with that huge success comes criticism as well, mm-hmm. people looking at your work in a way that they would never have otherwise. Uh, did you find that difficult to cope with, people wanting resolution at the end of the series, people you know, having very strong opinions about how you did sec- Series 2 and what they want you to do next? I mean, that's full-on stuff.
1: I know. And I have a very, I, I can get really stressed out really easily. My feelings about it are some of the things I take, they make my stomach hurt. like I, it stresses me out to s- such a huge extent. But then there are other things that it just doesn't. Like you're saying people wanting resolution to this series that I was just like, oh wow. I I don't feel anything about that. Where what are the most, ones
0: that get under your skin?
1: Oh, uh, the season two stuff that totally gets under my skin. It really does.
0: What What did someone say that just made you think? Well, oh, I think I there's a general
1: understanding that our second season. I constantly see it referenced as saying that it was a flop or that it wasn't as strong. And what drives me up the—I mean, fine, whatever. Maybe it wasn't everyone's cup of tea. Our download numbers on it are stronger than our download numbers on season one. And I feel like the reason people don't know that is because they are so divorced from, in the military world, serial season two— was very, very popular. It has been heard by a lot of people. And I just feel like, oh my, so somebody, so what drives me up the wall is some pop culture blogger who lives in like Greenpoint in Brooklyn and being oh, it's not as popular anymore. And I'm just like, oh my God, you have no evidence to back up the thing that you're saying just because you're just like some weird shallow person that just because it, it's not on your dumb blog I don't in any way the whole thing it just drives me up the wall and I get really I can't even totally I start I know I sound like a crazy person talking about it this is me now feeling punch drunk and tired but I it really does I I just feel it completely irritated by it
0: there's some blogger in Greenpoint that's going to write another blog probably fuck them
1: I really the whole thing I just it, it just gets me totally irritated
0: America is entering a new era. Mm -hmm. You're going to keep telling stories. Does the importance of storytelling change now, do you think?
1: I don't think the importance of storytelling changes, no. I don't think so. I think um, probably the importance of journalism changes.
0: Because there's a lot of self-reflection going on in American journalism about what it has done, maybe where it's failed, Mm -hmm. mistakes it's made. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a lot of anger towards the media, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. do you feel a sense that things will need to kind of alter?
1: I just think, I don't know in terms of storytelling, like where that exactly comes. I have a couple of thoughts on all of this. I mean, it all just feels like it's all, it's all been so fast and you're right that there has been a lot of self-reflection by members of the media, within the media about both is there stuff that we did wrong? And like, did we just get our asses handed to us? And what more should we be doing? And what did, you know, where should we be focusing in the future? It is also looking like we are possibly entering a very hostile period with the government's attitude toward the press and the, the public's attitude toward the press. Like, just the whole thing is is shocking and and it's it is a whole new era and and something to be thinking about in terms of the role of storytelling in it. There's a lot of discussion about empathy. That that's what's lacking is that we're lacking uh, that the public is lacking a lot of empathy. That there are these partisan divides and it's sort of tribal and there's there's an inability to see the other side and that what we need is more empathy. If that's true, then that probably bodes well maybe for storytelling because narrative journalism is very good at being sort of empathy machines. That said, I have like a slightly dimmer view on that and that I feel, you know, this was, I don't know, my fourth or fifth presidential election of since working on This American Life. And the stories that This American Life has done have, have always been... Yeah, it's like an empathy machine. And and I have to say that I feel like we're really skilled at knowing how to sort of bring listeners into the character's life or to see it from their perspective and in surprising ways that maybe that they hadn't thought of before or something like that, except for on the election shows, unless it has like a partisan bent to it. And if at all what they're discussing has already had some ground staked out on it, that this makes you red or this makes you blue, I have found that it is really, really hard for us to get somebody to see the other side. And it's so disheartening for me. I I just see the comments on Facebook and the emails that come into the show, and then I just try and tell myself, well, you know... Somebody who's going to go on the internet and make a comment or sit down and and write an email to your show and stuff like maybe this is a self-selecting bunch, you know, of people who, you know, they're like internet commenters or something. Maybe that's true. Maybe there's a quieter empathy sort of thing that is happening that I don't really hear about, but... I certainly – I don't hear about it. So I don't know. I feel a little worried about the idea that thinking like, oh, yeah, that's all we just need is we're just going to tell each other stories in a more empathetic manner, and then we'll see and understand each other because – I don't know. I just uh, now I feel like I- I've seen that talked about and I kind of want to almost go up to people and be like, well, you know what, now you're coming into my world. And <laughs> like, I got to tell you, it's not great in here. Like, I- we have not had a ton of success with this. I don't feel like we've had a ton of success with this.
0: If journalism broadly has somehow lost the trust of the people, of the audience, in what seems like a quite significant way, is there a way to win it back?
1: I do think that there is an element of where, and maybe this is where the storytelling can come in handy, is that I think people, they don't trust like an authoritative voice, and, but perhaps what they do more trust is a voice that they relate to or that seems like it's talking to them in a normal way. I don't know, you know, I try and kind of even think about what is the appeal of Trump, of somebody who, you know, he he is has he talked out of both sides of his mouth in numerous ways. You know, he says one thing and then the next thing day he says, no, I never said that. And he says the opposite thing. And it's constant. And I don't, and, and then I feel confused about like, why is this not upsetting? I don't understand why people aren't upset about this, you know? But then on the other hand, like, you know, everyone's like, he's a very straight shooter, you know, he's a real straight talker and stuff. And you're like, what? But I, yeah, though, he talks like a person, he talks like a person I know. You know, he he talks like somebody who's sitting at your dinner table. He's not talking like, you know, a, a sort of an authoritative news broadcaster. And so maybe maybe in that way, the storytelling and the more casual approach and stuff like that, maybe that'll work. I don't know.
0: Julie Snyder, it's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Me too.
0: It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Moss. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Ben Wood, Shane Johnson, and Ian Cooper, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. And our executive producer is Daniel La